0: Welcome to In Loving Recollection. This is your pal Brent. When I was 18 and working at Atlanta Bread Company, I had a pretty big crush on an older co worker. She was a beautiful brunette that was 10 or so years older than me and also had a young son. I really liked her, and in my very young and naive mind, I remember once thinking that if she would just reciprocate those feelings I had for her, then I'd be willing to step up and be that kid's stepdad. Now, I'm not completely sure how she even ended up in Noonan. I think maybe her ex's parents lived nearby, but I do remember that she wasn't happy living there. My feelings at the time were somewhat mutual, and perhaps that was another part of the appeal or at least what made us kindred spirits in a way. We wouldn't work together for very long, maybe three or four months before she and her son moved back to her hometown to live with her parents, and I think maybe go back to school. But during our brief time together, we did get to be pals. During that time, I was the weekend opener, meaning that I had to get to the store by 5.30 every Saturday and Sunday morning, to open it up at 6. I was usually the only one there until around 8, which is when my crush would show up for her shift. Besides the customers, it would just be the two of us for an hour or so. We would often talk about music. She was really into post-punk, and I was fully into the throes of my indie pop obsession at that point. And I remember we did a music exchange once, you know, lending albums to one another that we thought the other should hear. She lent me her copy of Are We Not Men, We Are Devo, and I gave her Cherry Pill of Montreal. I thought about lending her the soundtrack to Rushmore, but that might have been a little too on the nose. She was really cool, and I think that possibly she might have thought the same about me. I did actually ask her to be my date for my senior prom. Half-jokingly, of course. And she did say yes, but changed her mind soon after. I think maybe she realized that what she initially thought would be a really funny thing to do would not be viewed as such had we followed through with it. Or maybe she could sense how into her I actually was. I mean, I never realistically thought I ever had a chance. I knew that because of our age difference, especially considering where we each were in our lives at that point, it was never going to be anything beyond flirting with one another. But there was always that little space in my mind, the place reserved for storing unrealistic ideas that I'd sometimes let take over and ruminate on thoughts of what if. Twenty years later, I'd hear the song Old Enough For You by Kansas City-based songwriter Liam Kazar, and I'd know exactly where that guy was coming from. I'd first become aware of Kazar through his association with Wilco's Jeff Tweedy, which at first was just as a member of the touring band for Tweedy's material that he made with his son Spencer under the name Tweedy. And then I would continue to see him pop up and stuff here and there, Because of my interest and being a fan of that whole world, it was natural that I would eventually come upon Kazar's first single as a solo artist, the track Shoes Too Tight, which he released in the spring of 2020. I liked what I heard, but what really did it for me, and in a way made me like Shoes Too Tight even more, was later that year when he released On a Spanish Dune. Hearing that winning combination of synthesizer and pedal steel, along with its sophisticated melody, I just knew that whatever album this song might someday appear on would definitely be a record for me. This belief was further cemented when the great Kevin Morby announced in the summer of 2021 that he'd be releasing Kazar's full length, titled Due North, that August on his Woodsis imprint, Mare Records. It just seemed like this record would be checking off all the boxes, and I could feel my anticipation for it building. And when Due North was finally released, I put it on, and I listened. This is the story of that record.
1: My name is Liam Kazar. I've been a musician sort of in and around Chicago for a long time.
2: There you go again, making a fool out of me. Caught your train and suddenly I'm lost. And I can't see. Where'd you go, my love? All of the world.
1: started out playing in a few bands, one was called Kids These Days, another one was called Marrow, and then sort of I began playing in other people's bands more professionally, and I've been doing that sort of for the last six or seven years or so. I played with this guy Jeff Tweedy a lot, I played with Steve Gunn, my friend Knox Fortune, just sort of playing guitar in people's bands or dates, but I've always written songs and I didn't really have a band that I was in anymore to do stuff with my songs so I sort of worked my solo record about three years ago and it was a really slow incremental process and then uh, it finally all sort of came together in the last year and I put it out it's called Do North and it's out under Mare Records which is an imprint of Woods' Records.
0: Raised in Chicago by artistic parents Liam Kazar would be introduced to music at an early age, which would eventually lead to him learning to play it.
1: I grew up on the northwest side of Chicago in a neighborhood, basically Albany Park, and I grew up just around music a lot in general, both in my family and eventually like my friend group. I mean, my earliest music memories are not so much with playing music, but with listening to music. My family did, like, a camping trip when I was a kid. We drove, I think, out to, like, Yellowstone or something. And we had, like, a, a Motown Greatest Hits CD in the car. And I remember when I heard that, I was like, this is incredible. And I got obsessed with that music. And then I have a memory of listening to songs in the Key of Life on my parents' stereo. I still have that record that I listen to. When I was a kid. And also listening to like Frank Sinatra records or something like that that my folks would have in their record collection. All my early memories are just listening to music. Falling in love with it as a listener before it has something to do with your time. My dad plays music and a lot of the gear I learned how to play music on is his gear. And my sister runs a studio with her partner. They have a lot of the gear that we had from back in the day that was my dad's that he sort of left down in the basement. My mom's a painter and so art was just sort of always of high value in my house in general, whether music or art. My mom's studio was in the garage in the back. And so being a musician, taking art seriously never seemed like a, a stretch or like a weird thing to do because that's what my mom did. I took piano lessons when I was seven because that's what my sister did too. My sister was always taking piano lessons in choir she always she was kind of like a music savant as a kid and i was very much not so i took piano lessons because she took piano lessons you know and i started when i was seven by the time i was 12 i started playing guitar and after six months of playing guitar i was better at guitar than i was of like six years of piano lessons um I just immediately took to the guitar and the bass. And I've, like, circled back to the piano. I write on the piano a lot. But I, I, when I, like, fell in love with playing music, that was definitely with, like, the guitar and the bass.
0: It is in elementary school that Kazara would first meet Spencer Tweedy, with the two becoming friends through their common interest in music. Eventually, Kazara would become a close family friend with the entire Tweedy family with the family's matriarch, Sue Miller-Tweedy, referring to Kazar as her other son.
1: Yeah, she still refers to my mom as that other woman. I grew up a couple blocks away from them, but then Spencer and I went to the same grade school, which was not in our neighborhood. It was like uh, a Montessori school, like far away. So we not only went to school together, but we lived close to each other, and not a lot of kids in our neighborhood went to that school. And uh, I wasn't really close with him until we started playing music together, which was when I was 12 and he was maybe nine or something like that, you know, playing at the school like talent show or something like that. And just realizing, oh, you play music too. And he's a great drummer. And he was a great drummer at that age. And so my dad knew his mom from back in the day, but we sort of like became friends sort of separately. And then when I was in high school, my parents, like, would go away for a while. My dad was living in D.C. for a while, and my mom would go stay with him in D.C., and when she would leave, I would go stay at the Tweedies.
0: It is around the same time in which Kazar begins to play music with other people that he would also begin to experiment with songwriting.
1: I think I wrote my first song when I was 13. I had, like, a rock band. I started writing songs around then. It was sort of like, that classic thing of like, we're a band, but we don't have any songs and nobody wants to sing. Somebody's got to do it. Who's going to do it? And I was like, all right, fine, I'll do it. And they're like, okay, well then you got to write the song because you have to sing it. You know, I had grown up like a Beatles freak and all that stuff. So I just got into the songwriting kind of right, right away. My dad had written songs too. um, And the value of, songwriting was always apparent to me. Those are the things I always like gravitated towards was like what makes something a good song. I had my period of like, you know, obsessing over guitar solos and I still do from time to time, but I I think I'm still at my heart just a a song lover.
0: At the age of 15, Kazar would begin playing music with some of his classmates, forming the band Kids These Days which would quickly gain a following in Chicago.
2: Look back crying, I think of tears Hope I haven't wasted all these years Maybe I'm a waste of time But tell me I'm not wasting time Look back crying, I think of tears Hope I haven't wasted all these years Maybe I'm a waste of time But tell me I'm not wasting time <laughs> ¶¶
1: Kissy started when I was uh, about 15. I would say it was right at the tail end of my freshman year, but really got going more like sophomore year of high school. Freshman year, I, like, started taking jazz really seriously and studying upright bass. All my after-school programs were, like, jazz programs, and I did them a lot with Nico Segal. We were in jazz band together at Whitney Young, our high school, and then we were in, like, the pit Orchestra for, like, theater stuff, and then we started doing, like, jazz programs at this place called Ravinia or Merritt School Music. And so we were just fast friends because of music stuff. He was really close with Vic Mensa. And we sort of assembled a a crew to start jamming in my basement. Um, And that included Lane, who was like my friend, um, and then Macy and a couple other people, Greg and JP, sort of came by for these jam sessions that we would do at my house. We just all were super into music. And so we just hit it off and started making songs together and, uh, started doing gigs. Yeah. It was sort of just a very natural, like, I guess this is a band now. Let's go play shows. The world had already sort of seen some stuff from Vic at the time. He put out like a little EP that people had like had their eye on. And then when he started being a part of this band that I sort of moved over to us and we were now like playing for labels and everything. And we started touring our senior year of high school and yeah, that trajectory just sort of happened really quickly because we were this fun band that we would do shows and kids from the city would all just show up. I don't know. We'd be playing a show with like a bunch of adults and they'd be like, why is there 400 children outside trying to come into this show? And it's like, yeah, we kind of have tapped into something a little bit. And so that, that word sort of spread around.
0: Kids these days would release their debut full-length Trap House Rock in the fall of 2012, but would disband a short while after in May of 2013. That same year, Kazar, along with his former bandmates Macy Stewart and Lane Beckstrom, would form the band Marrow, releasing an EP that winter and a full-length in 2015.
2: She's wrong, it's true, it's not so bad
1: All through Kids These Days, Macy and I were writing songs that did not really work for Kids These Days. As soon as we started Merrill, Macy we had like 20 songs she had written that were just sitting there, you know. And I had, not that many, but I had some, maybe 10, 10 or 12. And so it was just like, let's just um, start playing each other's songs
0: in this band.
1: Meryl toured briefly because we were there for a bit and then I started touring a ton with Jeff Tweedy and Spencer in what was then called Tweedy, and is now just Jeff Tweedy, his solo band. Um, and when I started touring with that, you know, it didn't leave a lot of space for narrow to tour, and so in the sort of vacuum of me being around, Skimming that's when Macy time. and my sister Seema started OWN. That
2: Damilium balloon from last year still refuses to
1: It was another, I mean, it was like a similar thing. I was like, sort of like my feelings when I heard, like, big solo music. When I heard what Ohm was doing, I was like, Macy, this is, this is next level. Like, you have to do this. You have to put energy into this. This is incredible. I'm just
0: walking around convincing people
1: to not work with me is basically my life story.
0: Kazara was stay busy as a touring musician, touring with Tweety throughout 2015 and into 2016 as well as stints with singer Knox Fortune and guitarist Steve Gunn. Having continued to write songs since his time in Marrow, Kazar decides to make a solo record, rather than starting a new band.
1: You know, a band takes a leap of faith, you know? And it can be really hard to, like, hang on to a central role in a band when you don't even know what you're doing. Because someone else could be like, hey, well, why don't we do this? And you can't really say, no, we can't do that when you have no ideas that are better for what we should be doing. I felt like I needed to figure out what I wanted to do or, you know, who I was. I felt like when I first started making that record, I didn't even know who I was at that point, you know. And to do it in the context of a band felt like, well, pretty soon this isn't going to be me. This is going to be the band because I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what I want. And if it's a solo record, then I can slowly accumulate things and sort of go down this path of self-discovery and nobody is sitting around waiting for me to finish this. You know, or waiting for like their moment to like get in a better idea. I love collaborating with people. I don't really like being in the studio alone, but I felt like I really had no idea what I was doing with this record. And it took me a long time to figure out what kind of record I was trying to make. And so that's why I felt like it had to be a solo record because I needed the space and like the time with myself to figure out what it was I was making. And I just felt like that would be too difficult to do in a band context. But then the other part of it was I knew that I wanted to just write songs and I like songs being malleable and not being sort of beholden to the artifact that is the recording and I felt like that was more suited to a solo record as well. It's like I could play these songs by myself, I could play them with just me and Spencer on drums, I could play them in a trio, I could play it with a 10-piece, you know, they could be any sort of version and all of them are valid. I just sort of wanted it to be a little bit more uh,
0: liquid. It is while working on the material that would make up his solo debut, that Kazar would receive some vital songwriting advice from Jeff Tweedy, which would greatly influence the direction of the record.
1: I had 12, 15 songs that I'd
0: written, you know, while I was on the road
1: with other people or whatever. And when I sort of made the decision that I'm going to make a solo record, I like went by and played them all for him. And he was like, it sounds like you're writing for other people, you're not writing for yourself. And he was absolutely right, you know, I was like, coming at it from a band context where I was writing a song that I wanted the rest of the band to like. And I wasn't writing things that I just loved for myself. And so then I just scrapped all of those songs and just started over. And that's sort of when I began that like soul searching process that took me a while. So I maybe sat down with Jeff and showed him all those old songs in like 2016. And he was like, I mean, he was very encouraging, but when he said that to me, I was like, okay, so all these songs are gone. And that's what I did. And then it was like in 2017 was when I sort of like hit the ground, sort of like, what does it mean for me to write for myself? Who am I even? You know? I think the first song that had a version that I put together for the record was Shoes Too Tight. And that song I like sort of, discovered kind of by accident um and it was just an immediate sort of like oh this is me this i don't know what this is but it's definitely me and i was super excited by it i knew that i wanted to make something that was groovy at times at least it doesn't have to be like a dance record the entire time but i knew i wanted to make a record that was like groovy and i was struggling to figure out how to do it for a long time and then Shoes to type came together because that song was originally like a slow ballad sort of thing. And then I was just messing around with the keyboard and like changed the rhythm of it and sort of came across that like keyboard part that I play in, in the song. And I was like, oh, there it is. That's what I've been looking for. I sort of put that song together really quickly and was like pushing myself out of my comfort zone sonically using sounds I wouldn't use have used in the past like that synthesizer or that guitar tone or like very little reverb, stuff like that. Like just sort of pushing myself away from the sort of tropes that I felt like I'd done in the past that always left me a little unsatisfied. And so then I, I sort of fell in love with that and I was like, okay, this is me and this feels great. Just sort of sat with it for a little while. And then during that process, then I started another song just that was just a loop that I did with Spencer one day that eventually became Spanish Dune. The loop of that song that goes throughout the verses, that's all that song was for a long time. And I actually had all the lyrics written out except for the lyrics that I sing over the chorus. But I had all those lyrics written out and I just sang those over the loop and they were sort of free formed and i knew i liked it um and i just said, and i was like okay so now these are my two extremes of this record and i've i sort of was like i've got shoot tight over here and i've got spanish dune over here and the rest of the record is going to exist somewhere in between these two songs and that's sort of what i did i was like i'm only going to use these sounds i sort of like this repetitive chord progression thing as opposed to like trying to do a bunch of like winding road sort of chord progressions and i just sort of used those two songs as my north star and like filled in the gap and it took me a while but that's basically how it came together
0: as work on the material progressed kazara would bring in musician james elkington to help produce the record
1: so we play in Jeff's band together so i've been playing with jim since um 2014, when I first started playing with Jeff. And he just knew what I was going through. He knew I was having you know, a bit of an identity crisis, not just as a musician, but as a person. And he knew what I was influenced by and what I was trying to make, kind of even before I did. And so much of his production that he did on the record was him just talking to me, talking to me about what I was trying to do and how I was trying to do it. You know, he's he's really, you know, whole self-deprecate himself and say that he didn't do anything, but he did everything for me. Aside from playing all the Pebble steel on the record, I couldn't have made the record without him because I felt like I didn't know what I was making until I talked about it with Jim. And we had a lot of conversations on the road or over a meal or uh, on the phone. You know, every tune, I would send him over email and he'd write me back an email of like, Basically, warm or cold, you know. It was just a a slow process that I was just sort of always sort of knocking on his door with advice, and he was always giving it to me. And he didn't spend a lot of time in the studio making it with me, but every time I would do something, I would send it to him, and then we would talk about it. I really valued that. He just sort of, like, stumbled into it because I made him. I just kept talking to him about it. There was no, like, formal, like, will you produce my record? It was just, like, I kept hitting him up and sending him stuff, and he kept responding.
0: Sessions for the record would take place at a few different locations, with the majority being recorded at Fox Hall, a studio in Chicago operated by Kazar's sister, Seema Cunningham, and her partner, Dorian Gehring. Additional recordings would be made during the mixing process in upstate New York with musician Sam Evian. In early 2019, Kazar and his partner would decide to leave Chicago and move to Kansas City, Missouri. And it is there that Kazar would meet singer-songwriter Kevin Morby, eventually signing with Morby's imprint, Mare Records.
1: Kevin and I were sort of an arranged friendship. When I moved to KC, we just had a bunch of musician friends that hit us up separately and were like, y'all two need to hang out, like, you would get on. And we did, and... We weren't together that much before COVID hit. And then in COVID, we would take walks together and stuff by my house or by his house. And then I started doing these, um, concerts from my porch in KC. And he came to one of those. I was playing a lot of my tunes at those concerts. Uh, according to him, that's sort of when he sort of was like, I want to put this guy's record out. But we had been friends before that. Just sort of been, you know, social friends, not like music friends before that. And then when he heard me play, I think that was when he sort of made up his mind about it. And that was right before I went to go mix it. That was maybe in, like, November 2020. And I mixed the record at Sam's place in December of 2020. So it all sort of kind of came together at the same time, coincidentally. I'd already booked the session at Sam's before I knew that. A label was going to put it out.
0: And in the end, he made a record. North opens with So Long Tomorrow, a track that accomplishes exactly what an opening song is meant to do. Effortlessly combining indie rock with blue-eyed soul, the track's mixture of atmospheric keyboards, pedal still, and soulful vocal harmonies pulls off the task of giving its listeners a glimpse into what they should expect without giving away all of its secrets in one sitting. Is a confident and playful introduction to this record, which also highlights the chemistry between Kazar and his collaborators, made all the more impressive considering the piecemeal method at which this album was made.
1: It's a really dead record, you know, it's really not about like capturing a vibe in a room. I mean, that can be great. That's sort of why I close-miked everything for this record because I knew it was going to be like, assembled over a long period of time, and I didn't want it to sound like, oh, like you were jumping back and forth from studio to studio, or from room to room while you were listening to the record. So that's why everything is really, like, close-sounding and not sort of spaced out. I really wanted it to sort of sound like it all happened at the same time, but it didn't. So my quick fix for that was miking everything really closely. (laughs) So Long Tomorrow was the last song written for the record. So by the time we recorded that one, the palette of the record had been pretty well established. You know, everyone knew what sort of sounds I was going for with the record. And, uh, and this one was recorded entirely in quarantine. So nobody was ever in the same room. And it was like, the process was, you know, Acoustic guitar and a scratch vocal recorded to like a drum beat or something that I would send to Spencer for him to play on. And then he would send me back the drum parts. Then I would send it to Lane to put the bass on. And he would send that back to me. Then I would send send it to David to put synths on. Then he'd send it back. Then I send it to Jim. You know, it was like piece by piece, just accumulating the song Uh, That's how it was recorded. I mean, I think it was recorded in like April of 2020. But that one just sort of spilled out of me, which is not how it goes usually. I wrote the first line of that on a run. Just the, I'd hang my coat on any old hook, but I prefer the second from the left. I don't know. I think John Prine had just passed away and i had been listening to a lot of John Prine and it just seemed like a silly, stupid line that kind of made me giggle a little. And just sort of about like not sweating things. And, um, and I wrote that on a run cause it was the beginning of the pandemic when I was running and the rest of the tune just sort of came together really quickly after that because I started it out with a kind of silly, pointless lyric. And I was like, well, let's just keep going with that vibe and just sort of talk about things being not that big a deal. Yeah. It just came together really easily. And when I went to go mix it, I thought of it as like a a deep side B sort of thing I had a different song in mind for the beginning of the record for a long time but then when I went to mix it with Sam he was like this has to be the first song of the record I would have never put that as the first song of the record Uh, so once he did that I was like okay I'm gonna trust the fresh ears with this and if they say that this introduces me well then I'll follow that and that's what we did
0: The lively groove-oriented track, Old Enough for You, contains robotic-like keyboard lines that weave around a tight rhythm section, bolstered by a gregarious bassline provided by bassist Lane Beckstrom.
1: who played bass on the record is also a drummer and if you like solo out all his bass parts he's like a drummer where he's like keeping time in between the notes that he's playing you know he's like tapping the strings and you can't really hear it in the recordings if you solo his bass out you always hear him going like you know keeping time like a drummer does combining that with putting him on a fretless bass that's super liquidy and you know weird Semitonal sort of things happening it was just like a really fun bouncy combination. You know oh, Old Enough for You was an experiment. That was the other one that was recorded during COVID. Um, it was The oldest song that I'd written, that was the only one from the batch of songs that I threw away that I was, I knew there was a nugget or I I liked something about it and I just couldn't like quite throw it away. And I had made like four different versions of that song and never felt like I got to it. And I think the reason why was because I knew the lyrics were silly but I was afraid to bring that sort of silliness over to the music. Once I had made this whole record that in my opinion had sort of aspects of silliness to it, I now felt a little bit more freedom and I was like, let me take one more stab at this song and see if I can do something fun with it. And I had been listening to a lot of like late seventies, early eighties stuff like McCartney too. And, some Talking Heads stuff and some Robert Palmer stuff. And I sort of was like, what if I tried to make a dance song? Like, let's see what happens. It sounded really silly when I sent it out with just my guitar. When Lane sent back the bass part, I was like, okay, it worked. And Spencer did a great take on it too. And that's when I was like, okay, this is worth sort of finishing up. And again, I like when I went to go mix the record, I like showed that one to Sam last. Like there were a couple songs that didn't make the record that we'd finished mixing. We had finished mixing the rest of the record, and I was like, Okay, and by the way, I have this song. I was trying to do something fun and I made this. We can mix it if we want to or not. I might just put it out as something else. And again, trusting Sam with fresh ears, he was just like, Yes, let's do this one. This is fun. I was like, I don't know if the ending is there. He was like, Just need the sex solo, baby. (laughs) And he put a sex solo on it and finished it up. (laughs) Uh, I remember when he was recording the solo. I was, like, sitting there in the studio with him. It was the only time he turned around. He was like, why don't you go uh, go make some coffee, go hang out with Hannah uh, and Tara, and uh, I'm going to work on this. Like, I'll let you know when I'm done. And so I left, and I came back, and he had done all bunch of weird things. like, slow it down and pitch it down, because he was playing... A tenor sax but he wanted it to sound like an alto sax so then he like slowed it down pitched it down and then sped it back up and made it sound like an alto sax and i was like okay well this is now my favorite song on the record and it still kind of is yeah that song sort of had nine lives and i sort of always knew that there was something about it and i guess there was you know because i eventually found a way to make the lyrics and the music make sense together. And I think that's what I was always struggling with. This song was written, it's old, like I said, it's maybe five years old. And it was like just a time in my life where I was like really young. I was maybe 22 or something like that. And I had, was dating people that were kind of like older than me, you know, 28 or 30 or something like that. And I could just sort of feel the... uh the sort of age gap in the room and the sort of like the person drifting away from me because I'm a child. And I was sort of laughing at myself whenever I would be sort of despondent about that. So that's sort of where that came from. Yeah. That's just 20, 22 year old me dealing with rejection. That's all.
0: Following old enough for you is the quintessential Do North track, Shoes Too Tight.
1: sound is two sounds combined. It's like the Nord clav sound blended with this other synthesizer that I had like the MIDI out of the Nord going into this synthesizer called the JP08. It's like a little mini Roland synthesizer. I'm playing the keys and it's doing this the clav sound and it's doing the Roland sound, both at the same time. And we just sort of blended them 50-50. That synth sound on the Roland, it's like when you turn the thing on, it's the one that pops up and I didn't change it at all. You know, it's like, I'm really not a synth genius at all. I really don't know what I'm doing. It's just literally me turning on the synth and playing both of them through like a twin reverb. And that's what that sound is. And I really like that sound. And it only really worked because I was playing like really short notes. If I were to hold the notes down and you were to hear what that like synth sounds like when you like hold it down, it's like, it's really ridiculous. It's like, you know, it's like an unusable sound. But if you're just playing really short notes like I am on that tune, it sort of worked. And it's sort of like Got sort of tempered down a little bit by the collab sound. The lyrics in Tuesday Tight are sort of a, a collage, a little bit. There's just sort of like lines that I'd pull together that made sense to me. One of the themes of the record for me is like not sort of lamenting like lost time, sort of uh, kicking yourself for not seizing every moment. And and sort of forgiving yourself for that, you know? That's what it is about to me. And there's a little bit of a love story thing going on in there. It's really just sort of about forgiving yourself for not seizing every single moment, accepting the moment you're in.
0: Through its catchy and repetitive chorus, the track Nothing to You is the type of solidly constructed pop song that's able to worm its way inside the brain and stick around for quite some time.
1: song, it's like one of those ones where the chords just sort of rolled out. And for a while, I wasn't sort of sold on that song. I thought it was a little too hard on the sleeve. There's a theme of me giving up on my songs that other people tell me not to give up on that you'll see as we keep talking about this record. But Spencer really sort of pushed me to keep going with the song. And once we got David in there to play the synth parts or i was unconvinced until david sort of added the synthesizers that he did which he adds like an arpeggiator thing during like the verses that's going out of time it's more like a triplet over our quarter note like we're we're keeping time like this like
2: i wouldn't be nothing if i'd like one
1: two three and his arpeggio is slower it's more like One, two, three, one, two, three. And I like that sort of clash. So that's going on in the verses. And then he came up with this brilliant line during the choruses that I love that sounds like a theremin or something like that. Um, And once he laid that down, then I was like, okay, yeah. That song is uh, one of the songs that Jim Elkington describes as chord maps, where it's like a chord, 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 and you got to be on your toes. And they're annoying to learn. (laughs) Um, Things are in four-bar phrases or eight-bar phrases or two-bar phrases. You know, it doesn't follow very logically unless you have, like, the melody there. I I just sort of wanted to write a straight-ahead love song. I feel like I was, like, shying away from, like, just saying what I really mean. I have a tendency to just shy away from saying what I really mean. And I wanted to just... See if I could just force myself to just say exactly what I mean, which is what that chorus is. I wouldn't be nothing if I was nothing to you. And if you look at the lyric sheet on like the vinyl, you'll see that those lines are 90% of the song. There's like barely any other lyrics, and most of the song is the chorus. But it's, I don't know, it's fun.
0: With its colorful and mysterious sonic landscape, the track, On a Spanish Dune, is a song that demonstrates Cazar's well-honed skills as an arranger, featuring a repetitious chord cycle that gives its verses a contemplative quality. The track gradually builds and eventually gives way to a cathartic release, and it is during this release that the revelatory interplay of pedal steel and synthesizer truly shot the blend is effortless and really speaks to the indispensable role that these two textures play throughout the entire record.
1: I knew pretty early on that I wanted synthesizer and pedal steel to be the sort of like the extra colors of the record, you know, I I didn't want to do strings or horns, I sort of just picked those two, and it was like, if we can't make it sound right with the synthesizer or pedal steel, then let's do a different idea, you know. It was a little inspired by, there's some Stereolab records from the 90s that have pedal steel on it, and I also love how like, it's not like spacey pedal steel, it's like, super dry, classic, natural country pedal steel. I really love this pedal steel player, Pete Drake. He has some solo records that he put out that I love. He's sort of famous for that song, Forever. Um, Oh, I know what was like the big inspiration. There's a song that didn't make it to all things in his past, but came out later in the deluxe edition called I Live For You. I love that song. I remember showing that song to Jim Elkington. He was like, how did this not make the record? I think that song is so good, and the role that Pedal Steel has in that song was sort of what did it for me, where I was like, I want to make a record where Pedal Steel is like this. And then I got super into this Al Green album, the Bell album, and that had a synthesizer on it, and it's like, they basically just trying to make the record cheaper, and so it didn't pay for the Hollywood string section. Just Used this, like, you know, basic uh, string patch on a synth. And they used the same patch on the whole record, which makes me laugh. And I really liked that. And I don't know, I just was like, those are the two left side, right side colors. wrote the lyrics for that song in June of 2018. I remember because I wrote them while I was in New York playing a show. I was playing Gov Ball. I decided to stick around for a couple days because I love New York. I have lots of friends in New York. And whenever I'm there, I try and tack on some days just so I can say hi to people and just walk around. I love walking around New York. And I sort of like hung out at like the patio of a place for like five hours one of those days and just worked on those lyrics. I was just kind of in a place. I don't know. I must have been reading something uh, or it's something happened. I don't remember, but I was just feeling really um, scared about the future, particularly with regards to climate change. And I still am. But when I was writing that song, I was sort of in a headspace of like, at the end of the world, like who would you sort of ride it out with? Who would you sort of like sail into the abyss with, you know, when, Push comes to shove. And so I'm kind of singing to that person. And uh, there's a lot of like tension and release, I think, in that song. It's just stealing from American songbook writing. You know, it's like 90% of old tunes, not 90%, but like I would say probably 75% of tunes, you know, crooner tunes or like old jazz standards and stuff. The bridge goes to the four chord, and I just pretty much do the same thing. The song is an F, you know? So I'm just hanging out down here on F on this loop. I'm singing different phrases over these same three chords, these long sort of meandering verses, and the easiest way to just go to a new place is then just have a big, fat, dominant chord that takes you to the four chord. And that's what I did. Cause that's what you've heard. You don't even know that, but you've heard so, so many songs that do that. And I essentially just got bored with the loop and was like, we need something else. And I did that. And I think I, you know, I had the loop and then it just cut off and I just put together those chords in the chorus. Like it was just the first thing that came to mind. Cause I felt like I had, felt those chords before i'd heard that sort of harmony before in other songs but it was just a process of essentially uh i don't know maybe it's the wrong thing to say but like justifying that sort of like classic chord structure and i tried to do that with the lyrics i tried to do that with the melody and i tried to do that with sort of the counter melody things that the pedal steel and the synthesizers are doing because it was like oh wow he's just gonna do the big fat American chorus that we've all heard a million times, and so once I decided that's what I was going to do, it was like, all right, how do I make that new? How do I make that worth it? So we did that, and like, there's a lot of different things going on in that chorus. There's background vocals. There's pedal steel it has its own line. Um, it's got this big two five one, which is a, the chords at the end. It goes to the two minor chord to the five chord. Um, you know, just your standard stuff. And I filled it in with, like, extra lyrics, like the lyrics, um, while the cicada's side and river's mouth is wide. That felt like, uh, I don't know, like an Alan Toussaint sort of lyric to me. Or I was thinking about Alan Toussaint in that lyric. Just because Alan Toussaint, I think, you know, he's from New Orleans and just makes me think of, like, the river and sort of talking about the landscapes along the water, and I had already had the on a Spanish dune thing uh, in the verse, so I sort of went more with the river imagery in the chorus, because those chords just reminded me of Alan Toussaint, in a way.
0: Inspired by 20th century figurative painter Francis Bacon, the track Frank Bacon is a driving number on which Kazar's self assured and expressive croon sits atop a foundation of ethereal keyboard sounds, expertly executed guitar fills, and a truly exquisite rhythm section anchored by Spencer Tweedy's distinct style of drumming. I mean, just listen to that beat.
2: upstream
0: Nothing's ever gonna be the way it seems Isn't
1: that good? I mean, Spencer's a brilliant drummer. I mean, he's on so many records. He's played on a lot of records already. He's young. Because he knows how to play in a studio setting, he knows how to play in a live setting, too. But most drummers you'll meet know how to play in a live setting. Very few drummers know how to play in a studio setting. They're different. And he is an incredible studio drummer. He trusts the people he's working with, that he doesn't need to explode out of the drum set to be heard. He knows that any little thing he does will be heard. And so he conserves his energy he chokes up on the sticks and he's playing really quietly. But then when you hear it in the room, because he's playing quietly, you're able to sort of like capture every little thing that he's doing and it all comes across. And so he has these really slightly nuanced sort of drum parts that would get lost if he were playing like super loud, you know, and that song, you know, when I first showed Sam Evian, the tunes that I was working on, I showed him Shuzu Tight and Frank Bacon, and he and my friend Brian, who's a bass player, both just lost their mind about the drumming and bass playing on that song. And there is something sort of intangible about that song, how it came together. I don't even re- really remember how it happened. Like, we had those two chords, that is the verses, And then I remember it was like, oh crap, oh crap, we only have that part. Like, write something really quickly. And I remember, like, it was that classic thing of, like, just the first thing that came to mind, like, these chords, these chords, and that was the chorus. And, like, wrote it before we started doing the first take. I didn't have anything to sing over it, I had nothing. And I remember my friend who was engineering the session, he's like, really? Do you want to do that? Like, you don't even know if you like that. And I was like, yeah, let's just do it. Let's just do it. And sort of created the song after the fact, because when you have everyone in the studio and everyone's ready to play and all the mics are up, you want to start capturing things, you know, even if you don't have things written, it's like, just start going. And that's sort of where that song came from. I had two chords, you know, it was just another one of those sort of happy accidents that happens in the studio when you hire the right people. Um, I was reading a book at the time called Interviews with Francis Bacon, written by this guy, David Sylvester, I believe is his name. And when I started reading it, my mom was like, you're reading that? Like, you know, she was like, they made us read that in art school and stuff like that. But I was just sort of attracted to his um, sort of uh, the harshness of his own perspective of himself. He would make these like incredible paintings of like, you know, he has some really insane stuff you know these like demented paintings of like popes and stuff like that that i think were really beautiful the way he uses like black in the background of his like paintings that are really intense and everything seems so purposeful and and like it's cathartic for him or something like that that he has to do this and then in those interviews he's just sort of like judging himself Like he would judge a a freshman student or something like that. Like, oh, this is a bunch of horse shit, you know. And I just thought that was really funny. And so on the song, I'm kind of like calling myself out for not sort of seizing the moment and sort of sitting around waiting for the world to go my way. I'm essentially trying to say, you know, nobody gives a shit about you unless you give shit about you and let's uh let's do something how about that you know
0: I've been where you are before is the melding of traditional folk music with nocturnal R and A sort of Greenwich Village meets Silk Degrees era Boz Skaggs.
2: All your dreams have turned to hopeless schemes and burn. I've been where you are before.
1: I've been where you are was a quick one. I don't often write a song front to back in the day, and this one sort of went that way. You know, it's it's really just built around that title, I've Been Where You Are Before. The first two chords of the song I had and was just strumming. I usually keep a guitar in my house that's in open D, which is D-A-D, F-Sharp-A-D, and this song is in that tuning. And I have a very early demo where it's just me going back and forth between those two chords and. The melody line, I've been where you are before, came. And then I felt like, you know, it was one of those things where it was like, I said everything I need to say. So now it was like, OK, how do I, you know, I can't go any more forward from I've been where you are before because that's exactly what I'm trying to say. So I need to expand, you know, to the left and right of me and just sort of like explore that way, because it's not going to be a linear song when you've said exactly what you mean to say in the first line. Um, and I just liked that line so much with that melody that I was like, okay, I'm going to write this like it's an old folk song where it's like a refrain that comes back. Like it's something you would play at the gaslight or something, you know, with Dave Van Ronk or something. That's what I was like trying to do. So I, I wrote it as a very like acoustic sort of folk tune, you know, playing in an open tuning. And then I was like, how do I bring this into the fold with everything else? And I don't know, luckily it sort of just came together. That one came together really quickly. That was one where it was like, I wrote it at home in KC and then came to Chicago. And I think the whole thing was done in like one or two sessions, like one or two days, uh, which is quick for me. And then the sort of like ship imagery that's throughout the song or the water imagery, that was just the chords the minor chord that's the beginning of the song starts on an A minor chord but the song is in E it just kind of gave the whole song a sort of swampy vibe to me and so I think that's why I started talking about um you know water and ship sort of imagery I love a boat I'm happiest on a boat if you ever get to know me more you'll realize I'm never happier than when I'm on a boat
0: As we near the end of the record, we get the laid-back, slightly psychedelic country of No Time for Eternity, which features Chicago-based artist and vocalist Andrew Saw.
2: Dancing in the sunshine together, nothing that's here lasts forever, making time to live
1: I first saw Andrew playing in a friend of mine's sort of stage show in Chicago called The Grelly Duvall Show. Uh, My friend Alex Grelly puts those shows together. That's where I first saw Andrew, but uh, I got to know him more. We were a part of this um, sort of Chicago showcase thing that would happen at the hideout called Cosmic Country Showcase, and I played in the backing band, I played guitar. Andrew was a guest singer on our first event we did and he was so good that we just bring him back every time Like it's a different round of singers every time except for Andrew He's like the one constant that we have to have back every time because he's so good And as soon as he comes out everyone starts screaming He hasn't done a lot of stuff outside Chicago, but in Chicago. he's kind of like a living legend so I just been in love with his voice ever since I started doing some shows with him and I knew that I wanted to do, have one feature on my record and I was, it was pretty early on I decided that I wanted to try and write a song for and e. eyes so. No Time Fraternity I knew I really liked the chorus and I knew I felt like I was saying a lot, or I really liked the shape of the chorus and that I wanted to do it more than two times I couldn't figure out you know, I had like intros and then just going straight into the verse didn't feel right. It didn't feel like we're leaping into the verse. You know, which is, a, if you if you listen to it, Spencer goes to the ride symbol on the verses and he's on the hi-hat during the choruses. So it, it gives the verses this feeling of like we're we're sort of jumping into it and we come down for the chorus so that you can really hear the vocals together on the choruses. I sort of came up with the idea of starting with the chorus because I knew I wanted to do it three times. And, you know, traditionally you would do verse, chorus, verse, chorus, then like a solo and then a chorus. But to me, the song was all about the duet that I felt like a solo would take away from the duet. Because the whole point was I wrote this song as a challenge to myself of like trying to write a duet. And so I didn't really want to have a solo of any kind, like steel solo or synth solo or guitar solo or anything. I just wanted it to be about the vocals the whole time. So that was sort of why we started the chorus. And yeah, that verse melody was like the hardest part of the song. The chords for the chorus and the chords for the verses are very similar. They're slightly different, but like trying to write a a new melody over that was, was different, because I just kept hearing the chorus in my head.
2: Through the years, I heard you say, I don't think I can stay here anymore. Naked roses on the lawn, another season gone for war. But I'm hard.
0: The album's penultimate track, Give My World, is the last full band arrangement on the record and finds Kazar and his collaborators channeling the spirit of Funkadelic and building up to a moment of pure communal joy.
1: There's a couple songs on the record where it started with a loop that ended up becoming the verse and Give My World is one of those. The verses were just something that I had uh, a few different versions of of just like some musicians over playing those two chords. And there would be these long stretches and I would play keys over it or I would sing over it or I would place different bass under it to like change the harmony of it. And uh, that one was sort of built around this line that ended up kind of getting obscured a little bit. That's in the choruses. It's not really the main thing you hear anymore, but that was the the sort of like impetus for the whole song, was that melody. Um, And then just as I kept working on it and started building an actual melody to sing over it, that kind of got obscured. And It doesn't bother me that it got obscured, but it's just sort of funny how songs come together. This thing that is like the driving force behind the song is now like kind of a just a background little thing. Remember working out the phrasing of the group verse with OM was very specific and that was like you know one of those times where you, you print out the lyric sheet and you have to like do little symbols to let them know this this syllable is long, this syllable is short we're starting low here and then we're jumping up to here on beat one and, you know uh, all this sort of stuff, that was really tedious and then it was a classic like being really insecure about it, not knowing if it sort of had any teeth on the record and then sending it to Jim and he put pedal seal over it. And I was like, yep, I like it. And uh, yeah, it came together. That one was always sort of the one I was working on in the background. Like I have my new song that I was working on with the band. And then at the end of the session, I would open that one up and see, all right, let's take a look at this and see if I've got any new feelings about this one.
0: Futuristic country of something tender. A gentle number in which the album's key elements, the sweeping synths, the stately pedal steel, and Kazara's expressive vocals come together for one final moment of heartstring tugging. It's a track that emanates romance and warmth, true slow dance material, and is the perfect conclusion to this record
2: under surrender well I've only just the time left to whisper something tender
1: all the synthesizers on that song is I have this one monophonic synthesizer called MS-20 made by Korg and it's just me tracking each part one by one, you know, one note at a time. So I'm like, I've got a click track and I'm doing the bass drum like boom, 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 boom. Cause I'm a terrible engineer and I don't know how to loop things. So I just play them all the way through. And that song was like, when I had written that I was like, yeah, this isn't really for my solo stuff. This is too much of just like an old, ballad. Uh, I don't think it'll fit on the record. I did it live once where I played it with a friend who played like jazz piano like crooner style thing I did it at the end of a set and I was like yeah that was fun but I guess it doesn't really fit the record and then one night I just went down into the studio. Um, I think I had a bottle of wine with me and from like 10 p.m. to like 3 a.m. I was just like fucking around with this synthesizer. And I think I recorded the vocal that night too. Like it was just one of those ones where I, the lights were off. I was dicking around in the studio by myself, sipping some red wine and worked out an arrangement with this thing. And I sent it to Jim the next day. I was like, hey, this thing is kind of fun. I was sort of made it as like, a, just an exercise in learning how to use this synthesizer put some pedal steel on it if you want to and at this point i was still not at all thinking it was for the record and then he put pedal steel on it and he did a great job and then it was there and i was just like yeah that was a fun experiment and still not thinking of it as part of the record or anything and then at a certain point it just clicked it was just like well of course of course this is for the record it, i don't need to have you know, my full band on every song. Like, it's a solo record. I can put out whatever I want. And then it was like, okay, I guess this is on the record. And I'm I'm happy it
0: is. For the album art, Kazar would bring in photographer Alexa Vicious to work on its design.
1: I knew I wanted the album cover to be a photo. Honestly, my partner, she has a really great eye, and she sort of helped me put together a, a concept for the cover we had been talking with Alexa just about like colors because I had dyed my hair orange. It was sort of just trying to figure out how to like have that make sense (laughs) essentially. And uh, the hand thing was from some random picture we found online just because we actually liked the colors in the background. We were using it as an example of the colors that we were interested in, but then Tara, Alexa, and I all agreed that the hand was actually like really interesting. And so Alexa went and hunted down uh, the hand and um, just sort of played around with it. I had originally just asked Alexa to do just the album cover picture, not the design and everything. And then when I got to the studio, she was like, so who's doing the design for this? And I was like, "Eh, I don't know. And she was like, well, let me do it. And I was like, you do that? And she was like, yeah, I've done it for all these other people. And she showed me all the other records that she'd worked on. They all looked great. And I, I just love Alexa. I think everything she does looks great. So it's a pretty quick, quick decision. Easy yes. I think she did a great job.
0: Mare Records releases due north on August 6, 2021. To celebrate its release, as well as take advantage of that short window of time in which we thought COVID might be on its way out, Gazzar, along with many of the musicians that contributed to the album, would play some concerts in his hometown of Chicago.
1: I have to say, I feel like I, I put it out in a really fortunate time. A lot of people I know have put out records that haven't even gotten to do shows yet, still. Put out records last year and haven't gotten to do shows yet. So, to not only play a show, but play a show the day of the album release in my hometown, that was really fortunate um i got to do two shows too at sleeping village a great venue in chicago that all felt great we got our vinyl relatively quickly after we got it about a month after the album came out which is pretty good these days considering how long some people have to wait to get their album so i feel like i got really really lucky and had a great sort of uh release um and just the fact that it's my first record and you know, people have every day. It's, I don't know, I, I'll never get tired of somebody like posting a picture on Instagram of my record that's at their house. Like it's, it's an amazing feeling. So it's been, it's been great. I like started this food business in COVID because I needed money and I wasn't working in music. And since the record came out, I just have been way too busy with music to do that. And I'll return to it when things slow down, but it's been great.
0: Throughout the making of Due North, Liam Kazar would experience moments of self-doubt. It is while reading David Sylvester's interviews with Francis Bacon that Kazar had the realization that no one gives a shit about you until you give a shit about yourself. And with the help from an encouraging cast of collaborators and lots of self-discovery, Kazar was able to give a shit and create a successful statement of who he is as an artist.
1: I mean, overall, I feel great about the record. I mean, it's as realized as I ever could have wanted it to be. I don't feel like I had to make something out of the situation I had. I feel like I was able to make the thing that I wanted to make. And that feels great. And it feels great for people... To receive it well, so I'm a uh, I'm on cloud nine right now.
0: Thanks for listening to a loving recollection. A very special thanks to Liam Kazar for speaking with me about this very special record. You can stream and buy Due North on the various streaming platforms or at Liam Bandcamp.com. Seek this stuff out. It'll make you a better person. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or at inlovingrecollection.com. We'll see you next time. We'll get through this.